invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through, drum roll, can we get a drum roll, can we get a drum roll, 28. That's the last verse, 1 Thessalonians. We're going to make it through to the end today. I don't say that because I'm excited to get to the end. Um, I just say that to say we, we've made it, we did it. Uh, verse by verse through 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 28. The title of our message today is The Church, A Gathering of Gospel Grace. A Gathering of Gospel Grace. We're going to begin by reading the text. And so, uh, if you will, turn your attention to the Word of God. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Today we conclude our study of the book of 1 Thessalonians, and this, this book, uh, this letter, concludes in a very similar place to where it began. God's people experiencing God's grace. You can flip back to the very first verse, and you're going to see Paul mention God's grace. God's people experiencing God's grace. Now, before we go any further, I just want to define grace for us. Um, and I think that you know what grace is, but just to make sure we're all on the same page, let me give you a few different definitions. Uh, grace is, very simply, getting something good you don't deserve. That's one of my favorite definitions of grace. It's getting something good that you don't deserve. Or maybe you've heard it put this way. Grace is unmerited favor. It's favor that you haven't earned. You haven't merited it. It's unmerited favor. Or we could give a little bit longer definition, but I think this, again, helps us understand um, how incredible grace is. Grace is a gift freely given based on the will of the giver to give the gift rather than the worthiness of the recipient to receive the gift. It's based on the one who's giving, wanting to give, not on the one who's receiving, deserving to receive this gift. The Apostle Paul began this letter with a focus on God's grace. He ends the letter focusing on God's grace. And it makes sense that he would write a letter to Christians which begins and ends with the theme of God's people experiencing God's grace. Why would that make sense? Because that is the sum of Christianity. God's people experiencing God's grace. God restoring his relationship with his people according to his work of salvation, freely given to sinners through his Son. The Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, it's not just me, and it's not just you as individuals that get to experience God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's together as the people of God, as the church, that we get to experience God's grace. Today in our passage, I want us to learn this, that a healthy church is filled with members who are linked together through a shared reliance upon God's grace. A healthy church is filled with members who are linked together through a shared reliance upon God's grace. 
We have a lot of differences. We may, we may, not, we may not see eye to eye on all, 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 all things in life. We have different, um, different hobbies and different personalities. But the one thing that links us together as the people of God is a shared reliance, dependence upon the grace of God. Now, in chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, just to set this in the context, we saw that the church is a gathering of gospel relationships. Healthy churches filled with members who relate to one another well. And then in chapter 5, verses 16 through 22, we saw that the church is a gathering of gospel worship. We talked about worshiping God with our hearts and worshiping God with our minds. In these final verses of the letter, we see that the church is a gathering of gospel grace. A gathering of gospel grace. And I want us to examine these verses in three sections, okay? Verses 23 through 24, we're going to look at God's grace in completing our salvation, finishing the work that he started. Then in verses 25 through 27, we're going to look at the community of grace, the church, who live in fellowship with one another as God completes our salvation. And then we'll, we'll, we'll take a moment and look at that very last verse of this letter, verse 28, um, and, and look at that glorious word grace one, one more time, and the glorious one who is responsible for the grace that we get to enjoy. Number one, a gathering as a gathering of gospel grace, Church, we rely completely upon God to complete our salvation. If you can't pick up already, that word complete is going to be an important word today. We rely completely upon God to complete our salvation. You see this in verses 23 through 24. In verse 23, uh, Paul has a short prayer. And it's, in fact, a prayer we've already seen him pray, a very similar prayer at the end of chapter 3. And then he's going to follow that prayer uh, with a crucial statement in verse 24 regarding the character and the subsequent action of God because of his character. So Paul writes, now may the God of peace, here's his prayer, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, there's that word, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then verse 24 is this statement about God's character, he who calls you is faithful, and then an action of God, and he will surely do it. So Paul's prayer that God would complete their salvation, the, the, the statement about who God is, he is a faithful God, and then the action that results from that, he will surely do it. And let's look first at the prayer in verse 23. If you'll recall, Paul has spent the last 11 verses giving a list of commands the Thessalonians are to obey. Listen, there, there's work to be done as a follower of Christ. We have, we have commands that we are to obey. Verses 12 through 22 focused on how believers are to be living, what we are to be doing, the choices we are to be making as we live as Christians who have been transformed by the gospel. Really, you could go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 4 and see there that Paul begins this, this, uh, this, this uh, part of his letter where he's telling us, this is how you're to live, this is how you're to live, this is what you should be doing as someone who is a Christian. But now, as he brings this letter to an end, Paul shifts his focus, and therefore the Thessalonians' focus, and therefore our focus, away from what we are supposed to be doing, and places our focus on what God is doing for us. Away from what we're supposed to be doing for God, and on to what God is doing for us. And he puts it in the form of this prayer. This prayer has two parts. First, he prays this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Again, think back. This is where context is important. This isn't the first time we've seen this word sanctify in this letter. Think back to, uh, to chapter 4, verse 3, and Paul says, The will of God is your sanctification. What, we, what is sanctification? What does it mean for Paul to say, May the God of peace himself sanctify you? Well, uh, sanctification is simply God's act of setting us apart from the ways of the world. And we could describe the ways of the world as rebellion against God. 
setting us apart from the ways of the world to the ways of God, which is the way of holiness. That's what sanctification is, setting us apart from the ways of the world to the ways of God, to follow the ways of God, which is the way of holiness. God's purpose in saving us is that our lives would look less and less like the world and more and more like God, and that his whole, this holy behavior would be ever increasing in us until that day when we stand before the Lord and we are once and for all completely eradicated of all sin. We're just completely destroyed and we never struggle with sin ever again. Now the point of these verses is that while we are active participants in this process of sanctification, there, is, there are things that we are to be doing as Christians. We are active participants. It's not up to us. You see, here, here, here's, here's one of the most beautiful truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. One of the most beautiful truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God himself is the one who is ultimately doing this work of sanctification in us. That is a beautiful truth, Christian, because if it were up to you, if it were up to me, we would never be sanctified. We could not do it on our own. The ordering of the words in the Greek text of verse 23 places the emphasis on the word himself. If you're studying the original language, you would see that the way Paul writes verse 23 puts all the emphasis on the word himself, God himself. God himself, not you, Christian, yourself. God himself is the one who is doing the work of sanctification in us. And Paul prays that he would do it completely. Another way to say that is through and through. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you through and through, completely. That word translated completely or through and through is a compound word in the Greek. You know what compound words are. You take two words and you put them together and you make a new word. Well, that's what happens in the Greek with this word. It's made from the word that means whole, like I ate a whole donut, because whoever eats half of a donut, right? I ate a whole donut, the entire thing, okay? It's made from that word whole and the word meaning end, like I reached the end of the race. So the word meaning whole and the word meaning end, you put them together, and that's that word completely or through and through. And so this compound word means something like wholly attaining the end. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is emphasizing that God himself is the one who will thoroughly, 100%, complete our salvation. A salvation which has our perfect holiness as its end goal. And this is good news for you and me. Because if it was up to us to sanctify ourselves, we would surely fail. Now I want you to notice briefly how uh, Paul describes God in verse 23. How does he describe him? He describes him as the God of what? Peace. Describes as the God of peace. This is a phrase that's often used by Paul. Certainly God is a God of peace. To begin with, he's at peace with himself. God's not at war with himself. The, the, the three persons of the Trinity are not at war with one another. God is at peace with himself. But not only that, he is a God who has accomplished peace with those who have rebelled against him by sacrificing his son so that sinners can be reconciled. That means put back into a peaceful relationship with him, with himself. And, as, and as, if that's not enough, he then also breaks down the dividing wall of hostility, as Paul calls it in the book of Ephesians, between people so that we, who often are enemies of one another, can then live at peace with one another as we have been transformed to live at peace with God. God is a God of peace. One writer said this, he, speaking of God, can work sanctification only in those who have ceased to be in rebellion against him. 
Friends, because of the work of God, we have ceased to be in rebellion against him. That's good news. And therefore, God is able to sanctify us completely. That's only the first half of Paul's prayer. That's only the first half of verse 23. Look at the second half. Second half, he, he repeats the request, but he uses different words to do so. He says, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if the first half of the prayer could be described as a request for the sanctification of the believers, the second half of the prayer could be described as a request for the preservation of the believers. Notice what Paul's request is. It's that we would be kept, kept or preserved as blameless. Now, the word blameless doesn't mean that believers never sin. Okay, so when we see that we're, we're going to be blameless and God's going to present us as blameless, it doesn't mean that we never sin here on this earth. That at some point here, before Christ returns, we will reach a state of perfection. That's not what it means. What it does mean is that God will keep us, preserve us in such a way that the fruit of our salvation will be so evident that no charge against us concerning our salvation will be able to stand when we stand before Jesus one day. It will be obvious that we are a part of the family of God, that we belong to him, because there'll be this, this evidence that God has been changing us and shaping us into the image of his son. And again, notice the completeness of God's work in our lives. Paul's prayer is that our whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. God is sanctifying and keeping every part of our being. Specifically, Paul prays that that he would keep us blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the eighth time in this short letter that Paul has referred to the second coming of Christ. Over and over, Paul has pointed the Thessalonian believers to the second coming of Christ. Listen, this is is another just beautiful good news truth um, under the good news of the gospel. Church, we are not in an endless battle between good and evil. There is an end to this world as we know it. Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And all who are in Christ, uh, uh, that is all who, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 4, are chosen by God. All who, as Paul said in chapter 2, verse 12, have been called by God. And all who, as Paul says here, are being sanctified and kept by God will be counted. Are you ready for this? blameless on that day this is why we call it grace are you blameless am i blameless no absolutely not do i deserve to be counted blameless do you deserve to be counted blameless no we don't it's unmerited favor it's a gift based on the will of the giver not to 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 give not on the worthiness of the recipient to receive the gift instead of having the fury of god's wrath poured out on us those who have received by faith the gospel of jesus As Paul wrote in chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, will obtain salvation. Will obtain salvation. As he wrote in chapter 5, verse 9. Now, how can Paul pray such a prayer with such boldness and confidence when it comes to the completion of the Thessalonian salvation? The Thessalonians aren't perfect. He's written things to correct some of their behavior. They're they're Christians. They said they follow Jesus, but they don't always follow Jesus. How can, he, how can he write with such confidence about their future that they will be presented as blameless before the Lord one day? Well, his confidence, as well as ours, does not come from who we are, but it is rooted in who God is. 
remember, it has more to do with the giver than it does with the receiver. Verse 24 says, He, he, again, the emphasis on God, He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Probably, I know I say this a lot, but probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's one that I do find myself coming back to, just in my mind, even just as, a, as an encouragement to myself in my walk with the Lord. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Friends, it is the unchanging character of God which provides us with confidence concerning the completion of our salvation. It's the third time in this letter that we've seen the word called. Paul said in chapter 2, verse 12, that God calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And then in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul said that God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Now, here at the end of the letter, Paul says, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. So here's what that means. The God who calls us out of the kingdom of darkness into his glorious kingdom, and the God who calls us out of our sin into his holiness is faithful to accomplish that glorious call in our lives. Listen, Christianity is not a wishful religion. It's not a, it's not a well, I hope it turns out all right in the end kind of belief system. There are some who think it is. Well, I, I, hope, I, I hope I've done enough. Hope when, when my time comes that, that God will love me and God will accept me. That's not true, genuine Christianity. It's not a wishful religion. Christianity teaches a confident salvation. The gospel of Jesus provides a sure hope of eternal salvation. Listen, if you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, then you will, without a doubt, will forever enjoy his kingdom and glory, and you will daily grow in holiness until that day when you never sin again. And this is guaranteed not because we are good, but because God is faithful to accomplish what he, through his gracious call to salvation, intends to accomplish. If verse 24 said, if, if verse 24 said, if you who have been called are faithful, then you will surely do it. We would all be doomed. But church, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. It says he who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will sanctify you completely. He will keep every part of you blameless on that day that Christ returns. He will keep destroying your impatience. I say that for myself. And your laziness. And your impure thoughts. And your idolatrous heart. And your arrogant attitude. And your harsh tongue. And your undisciplined habits. And your dishonest motives. And whatever sin that wages war against your soul, you are battling against today and tomorrow. He will destroy it completely. He will bring you into his holiness and present you blameless on the day of Christ. That's good news. That's good news for me. That's good news for you. He will keep destroying it. Why? Because he has nailed his son to a cross. And when he nailed his son to a cross, he nailed our sin to the cross. And he has covered our sin with the blood of his only son. And you better believe that when Jesus shed his blood for us, he did everything that was necessary to bring us into his eternal kingdom. Listen, he will keep cleaning you up day by day. He will keep setting you apart unto himself until that day when his work is complete in you and Christ returns to take his spotless bride home to that glorious place that he is preparing for all who belong to him. Church, 
he will surely do it. God's not like that running back. We always see it at least one time every, every season who carries the ball all the way down the field to the goal line and then drops it about a yard short. And you go, what are you doing? One, one more yard. You, you dropped it. You dropped it a yard short. God's not like that. Listen, listen, here's what Paul is saying. If God has begun to carry you to heaven, he will cross that goal, that finish line, with you tightly in his grasp. And this truth should comfort us when Satan wants to remind us of our past sin. This truth should comfort us and strengthen us to fight against Satan's temptations to sin. This truth should reassure us when Satan wants us to doubt that we have been saved from sin. And so be encouraged, Christian. Be humbly confident in your salvation. Confident because God is faithful. Humble because he, not you, will surely do it. As Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I really just want to stop and sing some songs of praise to the Lord right now. But I said we're going to go through verse 28, and so we got to keep going. But I just want to, I just want to not miss this moment of praising the Lord for his faithfulness. And so as a gathering of gospel grace, we rely completely upon God to complete our salvation. But this glorious salvation, church, it's not just about you and God. It's not just about me and God. It's about us and God. It's about us and God. I mean, it seems like verse 24 would be a great place to end the letter, right? I mean, this high point, God's going to finish in you, Thessalonians, what he started. And yet Paul, he, he, he is driven back to the people of God. He's driven back to this church, this fellowship, the church at Thessalonica. It's not just about them as individuals. It's about them as the church in relationship with one another. And so, as a gathering of gospel grace, number two, we remain committed to one another as God completes our salvation. We remain committed to one another as God completes our salvation. It's easy to read quickly over the closing greetings of the New Testament letters as though the words pertain only to the original audience and not to us in the 21st century. really is. You get towards the end of one of Paul's letters and then he just kind of gives this kind of closing greeting and it's so easy just to say, well, I made it this far. It's just kind of, that's just his little kind of sign off to the church at Thessalonica. It doesn't really have anything to do with us. Listen, that would be a mistake for us to think that Paul's closing greetings in the New Testament don't have anything to do with us. One, they are the inspired word of God. Even the greetings that he gives them, this is the word of God. But there's so much we can learn. Paul writes, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And what word do you see repeated three times in verses 25 through 27? You should see a word repeated three times. It's the word brothers. He uses it in every verse. Brothers. In fact, he uses this word brothers 19 times in this short letter. 19 times he refers to the brothers. Now, this word brothers can be translated often brothers and sisters. He's referring to the church most of the time when he, he uses this word, the church as a whole. 
Here at the end, Paul uses this word to emphasize the togetherness of the people of God. Those whom God is faithfully sanctifying and preserving are not to live in isolation from one another, but, to our, but are to live in close community, close fellowship with one another. In these three verses, we see that prayer, personal interaction, and participation in one another's spiritual growth are things that should characterize this gospel of uh, a community of gospel grace called the church. We see in verse 26, call for prayer. Paul says, brothers, pray for us. It's a very short verse. There's a lot we can learn from that verse. We learn, one, the exclusivity of prayer. He doesn't want everybody in Thessalonica to pray for him. He wants the brothers and sisters in the church to pray for him. He calls on the believers to pray. He emphasizes this word brother here, brothers here, talking to the people of God. Why? Because Christian fellowship is a prerequisite for prayer. Listen, we don't request prayer from those who don't have access to God. If you are not a child of God, you don't have access to the throne room of God. And so even in Paul addressing just the church, just the believers, just the brothers and sisters in Christ here, we see the exclusivity of prayer. It is a privilege only for those who have received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also learn in this simple request for prayer the humanity of Paul. We learn the humanity of Paul. And really not just of Paul, but of Silvanus and Timothy as well. The, the, the writers of this letter. He says, pray for us. Pray for us. We learn the, the humanity. You know, I don't know about you, but is, do, you ever, do you ever struggle sometimes with like reading about the Apostle Paul? And even guys like uh, Silas and, and Timothy, and you just go, wow, these guys are just like, they're like super Christians. I mean, they're just like up here when it comes to Christianity, and I'm down here. I, I know I find myself, I mean, I like, I'm like, could I ever be like Paul? Could I, ever, I don't know if I could ever be like Timothy and Silas. I, we put them up on a pedestal sometimes, but, but it is good for us to look up to them as examples, but, but they're human just like we are. Paul says, we need prayer. <laughs> Pray for us. Friend, you'll never reach a place in your Christian life when you do not need your brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for you. Paul needed church family to pray for him. And he was not too arrogant to neglect asking for that prayer. But you know, it's hard to pray consistently and specifically for people you don't know very well which means we must be faithful to gather with one another and grow in our relationships with one another. You need prayer. I need prayer, which means we need to be developing deep relationships with our church family. But there's at least one more thing we can learn from verse 25, and that is this, that prayer is one way the whole church can be involved in frontline missionary work. Prayer is one way that the whole church can be involved in frontline missionary work. What, what is, what's Paul doing when he says, hey, we need you to pray for us? Well, he's, he's doing the work of a missionary. He's gone on to another city. He left Thessalonica. He went to Athens. He left Athens. He went to Corinth. He's probably writing this letter from the city of Corinth, which was not an easy place to do gospel ministry. And so he's there saying, pray for us. And so the Thessalonians get to be a part of the gospel work going on in Corinth, not the city they live in, but they get to be involved in it through their prayers. 
So one of the ways that you and I can be involved in frontline missionary work, when I say frontline missionary work, I mean the gospel going to people who have never heard the good news of the, of the gospel of Jesus. The gospel, uh, gospel church is being planted in places where there are no gospel preaching churches. That's what I mean by frontline missionary work. We can be involved in that in a lot of ways, but one of the ways is through prayer. We have specific missionary partners that we support through our church here at Southside, and we pray for them. We support thousands of missionaries through the North American Mission Board, through the International Mission Boards of the Southern Baptist Convention. I, I love praying for specific prayer needs for our missionaries. If you, if you have a, a, any kind of electronic device, smartphone type thing, you can download an app called IMB. IMB, standing for International Mission Board. IMB Pray or Prayer. And uh, download that app, and you can get just up-to-date, like daily requests. And there's specific requests from all over the world. It's so cool to see what God, read those requests, see what God's doing all over the world, and be involved in prayer for them. If you don't have, you can't download an app, you can go online, just go to the IMB website, and you get just up-to-date um, uh, prayer requests from all over the world. I love praying for those requests. I get to be involved in frontline missionary work that way, and you can as well. So verse 25 calls us to prayer. Verse 26 calls us to personal interaction. Verse 26 calls us to personal interaction. Very personal interaction, might I add. What's it say? Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, before we go any further, don't worry. We're not going to have a meet and greet time at the end of the service where we're all instructed to kiss one another. Okay? In the culture of the Thessalonians, as in many cultures throughout history, and even in some cultures today, a kiss on the cheek, sometimes on both cheeks, was a polite way to greet someone. Now, I don't think we have to actually kiss one another to apply this verse and what it is teaching to our lives. Paul's point is not that the church needs to be filled with lots of kissing just for the sake of kissing, but that the church needs to be filled with lots of warm uh, warm, uh, friendly, personal interaction, whatever that looks like in your particular culture, so long as it can be described as holy and not profane. There might be a reason it's called a holy kiss, right? Because there might have been some kissing that he didn't want to happen in the church at Thessalonica, all right? But whatever, whatever our culture says is friendly, uh, warm, personal interaction, in their culture, greeting with a kiss was a sign of friendship, and it conveyed a feeling of warmth and love and gladness to be in the presence of another. To be in the presence of another. Church, we might not practice kissing, especially in COVID-19 days. It's probably not a good idea. But, but, may the gathering of our church always be a gathering filled with warm greetings where we are delighted to be in the presence of one another. But perhaps the most important word in verse 26 is the word all. All. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Okay, why is that important? Well, I can only imagine that the Thessalonians would say, oh yeah, I'll, I'll greet this person and this person, but not that person. Not that person. Why can I only imagine that? Because I don't have to only imagine it. I know it's true for me as well. Oh, yeah, I'll greet this person friendly and this person friendly, but I'll keep my distance from that person. No. No brothers or sisters in Christ were to be left out when it came to friendly greetings in the gathering of the church. As we've seen throughout this letter, some of the Christians were struggling with sexual sin. 
Some of the Christians were struggling with the sin of laziness. Some of the Christians were immature in their understanding of certain doctrines of the Christian faith. And I'm sure that all the believers in Thessalonica did not see eye to eye on everything. But they were all to be greeted equally as brothers and sisters in Christ. Equal recipients of God's grace. The fellowship of the church is to be free from any and all favoritism. And so we have prayer in verse 25, we have personal interaction in verse 26, and then we have participation in one another's spiritual growth in verse 27. Notice what Paul says. He says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. See, it was likely that this letter was delivered first to the elders in the church at Thessalonica. But Paul doesn't just want the elders to read it. He wants the whole church to benefit from his encouragement and his instructions to them. Again, we see that same important word, all, all, all of the brothers and sisters could learn and grow from the letter, not just the ones dealing with the specific issues that he addressed in the letter. All of the believers needed to be unified around the true doctrine Paul had taught in the letter. All of them needed to grow spiritually so that those who received the letter, they were to ensure that everyone in the church heard Paul's instructions, which in fact was the word of God. Don't pick and choose. Well, this person needs to hear this sermon, but I don't really need to hear it. No, I need to hear it too. Oh, that person probably doesn't need to hear this sermon. I mean, they walk close with the Lord. No, they need to hear it too. We all need the word of God. So Paul's adamant that they do this, and he even calls God himself to witness against them if they don't follow through with reading it to the whole church. Now, we look at the specifics of verse 25 through 27, but I want you to zoom out for just a minute. Zoom out for just a minute on, on these three verses, verse 25 through 27. In all the details, just don't miss the one thing that Paul simply assumes will be taking place at the church in Thessalonica. What does he assume will be taking place? If they are going to be able to greet one another and hear Paul's letter read and thus know that Paul is requesting prayer, they must be gathering together. He assumes that this is a community of believers who gather together. Paul doesn't write individual letters to each of the believers. He writes one letter to the church because the church is a gathering. Church family, God is completing our salvation. And one of the primary means of our sanctification and preservation is the local church. Those who have this sure salvation will be actively involved in a local gathering of believers called the church. So I want to just ask you this quick but important question. How is your participation in the gathering called the church? How is your participation in the gathering called the church? Perhaps you're a Christian, but maybe you need to join a local church. Maybe you've joined a church and you need to be involved in that church. Whatever decision, don't put it off. So as a gathering of gospel grace, we rely completely upon God to complete our salvation. We remain committed to one another as God completes our salvation. And then third and finally, we get to end on a beautiful note. So excited. I'm so excited to preach. Even this last verse. <laughs> so short, but it's so beautiful. Third, as a gathering of gospel grace, church, we rest in the grace of Jesus, who is our complete salvation. We rest in the grace of Jesus, who is our complete salvation. Paul's final line of the letter is his ordinary closing line in almost all of his letters. You go, go, to all, go through all of Paul's letters that he writes that are in, in the New Testament. 
and you see this line, sometimes worded a little bit differently, but you see it in almost every one. It says ordinary closing to a letter. But friends, there's nothing ordinary about this sentence. Because there's nothing ordinary about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul began the letter by directing attention to grace, and he finishes the letter by directing attention to grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's entirely appropriate because none of this letter makes sense apart from grace. Would you think back with me for just a moment through all that Paul has written in this beautiful epistle? You can even follow along if you want to go back to chapter 1 and just scan your eyes. Church, there is no faith and love and hope apart from grace. There is no being chosen for salvation apart from grace. There is no joy in the midst of much affliction without grace. There is no turning from God to idol, from idols to God, excuse me, apart from grace. There is no serving the living and true God apart from grace. There is no deliverance from the coming wrath of God apart from grace. And that was just chapter one. There is no boldness to declare the gospel in the midst of much conflict apart from grace. There is no genuine concern for the people of God apart from grace. There is no walking in a manner worthy of God apart from grace. There is no calling into God's kingdom and glory apart from grace. There is no receiving the word of God as the word of God apart from grace. There is no endurance of persecution apart from grace. There is no being blameless in holiness apart from grace. And that was just chapter 2. There are no co-workers in the gospel of Christ apart from grace. There is no calling God Father apart from grace. There is no standing fast in the Lord apart from grace. There is no abounding in love for one another apart from grace. And that was just chapter 3. There is no ongoing spiritual growth apart from grace. There is no sanctification apart from grace. There is no controlling your own body and holiness and honor apart from grace. There is no brotherly love that overcomes the temptation of idleness apart from grace. There is no hope of the resurrection of the dead apart from grace. There is no glorious meeting of the Lord in the air apart from grace. There is no encouragement to be found in the second coming of Jesus apart from grace. And that was just chapter 4. There is no readiness for the return of Christ apart from grace. There is no spiritual armor apart from grace. There is no being destined for salvation apart from grace. There is no promise of living with Jesus apart from grace. There are no healthy relationships in the body of Christ apart from grace. There is no repaying good for evil apart from grace. There is no obedience to the will of God apart from grace. There is no... uh, Praying without ceasing and rejoicing always and giving thanks in all circumstances apart from grace. There is no spirit-led discernment of true and false teaching apart from grace. And then our passage today, there is no assurance of the completion of our salvation apart from grace. And there is no fellowship of believers apart from grace. And that's just chapter 5. And all of that is just one little letter in the New Testament, which is one book in the entire Bible. Church, there is no 1 Thessalonians apart from grace. There is no Bible apart from grace. There is no gospel of salvation apart from grace. And there is no saving grace apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is specific in the type of grace he points us to. It is none other than the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The world may say, no, there are many ways. And Paul says, no, you can kill me if you want, but I'm going to tell you the truth. It is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, not some unnamed God up in the sky, not some higher power, but we are not just a people of faith. We are a people of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friend, we don't deserve any of these blessings, namely salvation itself, and so it is grace. And this saving grace is only through Jesus, and so it's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, church, we rest. We rest. It calms our souls. It calms our spirits in the ongoing battle against sin and the persecutions that we may face. When we think we're not good enough, say, yes, I am not good enough, but Christ is enough. And we march forward in confidence, knowing that we are saved by God's grace. Yes, there is work to do. Yes, we must choose to follow Jesus each day. Yes, there are commands that we must follow. But in the midst of our working church, may we never lose sight of the fact that our salvation from beginning to end is the work of God. It is a gift of his grace. And so a healthy church is filled with members who are linked together through a shared reliance upon God's grace. We just ask you, have you received this grace? If you have not, you can today. You can be saved from your sin for all of eternity. You can have this confident salvation that we are talking about today if you'll place your faith in Jesus today. And if you have, if you are trusting in God to complete your salvation, are you daily trusting in Him? Or have you begun to rely upon yourself to complete your salvation? Or are you actively engaged in the gather of believers called the church? And are you resting each day in the grace of Jesus? I want to close with the words of David Brainerd. David Brainerd was a Christian missionary to Native Americans in the 1700s. And he wrote this in his diary on April 1st, 1742. He said this. Oh, that God would humble me deeper in the dust before him. I deserve hell every day for not loving my Lord more, who has, I trust, loved me and given himself for me. Every time I am enabled to exercise any grace renewedly, I am renewedly indebted to the God of all grace for special assistance. Where then is boasting? Surely it is excluded when we think how we are dependent on God for the being and every act of grace. Oh, if I ever get to heaven, it will be because God wills and nothing else. For I never did anything of myself but get away from God. My soul will be astonished at the unsearchable riches of divine grace when I arrive at the mansions which the blessed Savior has gone before to prepare. Church, may we stand astonished today at the grace of our blessed Savior. And may his grace lead us forward as we press onward while we wait for that glorious day of Christ Jesus. Church, God is faithful. He will surely do it. Because of Jesus, we are a gathering of gospel grace. You pray with me? Heavenly Father, what beautiful words you have given us in your word. Father, may we celebrate grace. 
May we rest in His grace. May it lead us to follow You more and more every day as we're overcome with thankfulness for Your grace. May it lead us into closer relationships with one another daily as we're linked together by our shared reliance upon grace. And Father, may we never, ever, ever come to a point in our lives as Christians where we think we are earning our salvation, where we think we are now worthy of your love. But Father, may we understand that every day, from the day we trust in Christ to the day we enter into your presence, it is all an act of your grace. We praise you for that. Father, would you help us worship you? Would you help us praise you with hearts and voices lifted up to the God of all grace? In Jesus' name we pray.